thanks to Him for all that we've heard and all that we will continue to hear this morning. Father, we're thankful that You've given us the Scripture. What a wonderful, wonderful reality that we have the Word of God. Many, many men throughout history have given their lives for this, for translating it, and even many of the prophets and apostles and teachers in the early church were martyred and put to death for their teachings. And because of their faithfulness and Your providence, Your Word has been preserved and has come down to us. And we're so grateful for that. And now, as we open the Scripture, Lord, it is our prayer that Your kingdom would come, that Your will would be done, that the reign and rule of Christ would extend in the earth, that Your people would be brought into the kingdom, that the fullness of the Gentiles would come in, that all of Your people would be converted. And we're so grateful that You will do that. You're not a, a Savior who is trying to save people and failing. You're a Savior who will save all of those for whom You sent Your Son to die. You will bring them into the kingdom. You will not fail. None of your purposes can be thwarted. All of your purposes will come to pass. You declared the end from the beginning saying that your purpose will come to pass. No one can say to you, what are you doing? You do all your holy will in heaven above and on the earth below. And we believe that. We're confident in that. And we know that no matter what happens, Lord, no pandemic, no uh, act of persecution, no tyrannical government could ever thwart the advancement of your kingdom. The gates of Hades cannot come against your kingdom, the gospel will extend forth. Your people will be saved, and for that we're thankful. And we just pray that as a church we would continue to grow in our walk with the Lord, that we would continue to grow in our faithfulness to the commission that You've given us, and that we would bring glory and honor to Your name. So may Your kingdom come, all to Your glory. Amen. Right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me please to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We've come to the final chapter of this little epistle after several, several months. And by the time we finish it, it'll be close to a year in Colossians, just diving deep into this wonderful book, drawing out all of the truths that are in it for us. We've come to Colossians chapter 4, and this morning we're going to finish our examination of the verses that we began looking at last time. And that is verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And as you already know, Colossians is a Christocentric book, right? It's all about Christ. It's all about His glory, His preeminence, His honor. It's all about the glory of the sufficient Jesus. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is the clear theme of Colossians. The false teachers at Colossae were distorting that. They were lying about Christ. They were propagating Christological error. And that posed a serious threat to the Colossians. So Paul writes this letter to refute that heresy and to prevent the Colossians from falling prey to that heresy. It is a polemical letter in the sense that it is argumentative. It's arguing against the heresy and it is a preventative letter in the sense that it's meant to prevent the Colossians from being deceived. Paul writes with pastoral love for these dear saints. And after expounding some glorious Christological theology in the first two chapters, Starting in chapter 3, Paul transitioned to sanctification. Sanctification. In the first 17 verses of chapter 3, Paul presented a three-step process for sanctification that we've all become very familiar with by now, I trust. Three simple steps. You fix your mind on heaven, you put off sin, you put on righteousness. And as you do that, as you gaze at the glory of Jesus, utilizing the means of grace at our disposal, the Spirit of God makes us more like Christ. That's how sanctification works. Paul has affirmed that as Christians we have become new creatures. We have put on the new self. We're raised to new life with Christ. And now that transforms the way we live. 
It transforms our relationships. It transforms our life. He affirmed that in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, He showed us what the new self kind of looks like in the church. He showed us what the new self looks like in the world in verses 18 on to 4.1. But now here in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul goes from the home to the world. He transitions from the home to the world. He shows us in this passage what the new self looks like in the world. Let me read these verses to you once again to have it in your mind. Colossians 4, starting in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As I told you last week, God made man in the beginning in His own image. In the image of God, He made him. And an important aspect of being in the image of God is that we are relational beings. We are relational beings. God, as a trinity of persons from all eternity, has always been a relational being, and we reflect that image by also being made as relational beings. That is to say, God made us for relationship. For relationship. Relationship with Himself and relationship with others. Relationship with Himself and relationship with others. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we're made to enjoy God, to be in communion with God but we're also made horizontally to be in communion with one another. We're made for relationship. And as I said last week, all of our relationships could really simplistically be divided into four categories. Four simple categories. There is our relationship to God. There is our relationship to our family. There is our relationship to the church. And there is our relationship to the world. And in a large way, sanctification is measured in the way you interact with those kinds of people. Anybody can sit in a monastery all day meditating for 24 hours a day and not have a problem with anger because you're locked up all day. But we really find out how sanctified you are when we let you out in traffic on the freeway. That's how we know if you're sanctified. That's how we know you're growing in grace. When your wife tells you to do the dishes because she's tired, then we find out how sanctified you really are, right? Or when your wife gets on to you for not taking out the trash. I'm just telling you my life right now. (laughs) But that's when we find out how sanctified we really are. Sanctification is measured not in mere theoretical knowledge, but in a transformed life. And So each of these relationships, our relationship to God, our relationship to the family, our relationship to the church, and our relationship to the world, each of these relationships are transformed by the gospel and carry certain responsibilities. You see, before conversion, we hated God. We hated Him. We were alienated from Him, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. But at conversion, God gives us new hearts, new affections, new life, and we, come to be, we become the friends of God. We're brought into the family of God. And our responsibility toward God is to now fix our minds on His glory and do all that we do in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ. But Paul has shown us also what the new self looks like in the home. Right? A new self looks differently in the home. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands love wives. Children obey their parents. Parents bring their children up in the ways of the Lord. Slaves obey their masters. And masters treat their slaves with justice and fairness. And then we also have seen the new self in the church. The new self in the church. 
Those virtues in verses 12 to 14 affect the way we relate to one another in community. We love one another. We forgive one another. We're patient with one another. We strive for unity with one another. That is what a transformed Christian looks like in the context of the local church. And really, if your gospel, if your Christianity hasn't transformed your life, then you have not got the real thing. You just have a false version of it. You just Maybe you've embraced it theoretically, but it hasn't really been wrought effectually in your heart. The evidence that the gospel has been wrought in our hearts is that it changes the way we live and react toward other people. So that's the new self in the church. But now, in the verses that I just read to you, Paul shows us what the new self looks like in the world. What the new self looks like in the world. He sets forth our responsibility to the laws, to those outside the church. And in a word, our responsibility to the world is evangelism. Evangelism. We're called to reach the world for Christ, to make disciples of all nations, to be witnesses for Jesus. We're called to reach the world for Christ. But how can we best do that? How can we best influence the world for our Savior? That's what we want, isn't it? We want to see Syracuse and the world turned upside down by the Gospel for the glory of Jesus. We want His kingdom to come. So how do we, what do we do? How do we best do that? Paul gives us three ways in these verses. Three ways by which you and I can effectively reach the world for Christ. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, and evangelistic speech. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, and evangelistic speech. And as we work our way through these verses this morning, may we commit to applying these truths to our lives that we might be faithful witnesses for Jesus. So three ways to reach the world for Christ. We looked at the first of those ways last week, namely evangelistic prayer. Look at verse 2 again. In verse 2, Paul wrote, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So we're to give ourselves to a life of prayer to be devoted to prayer, to pray always, without ceasing. Right? An attitude of God-consciousness, to be having set times set apart weekly and daily for prayer, and to just always be in constant conscious communion with God. Constant fellowship with Christ. Thinking heavenly. Thinking upward. Looking upward. But we're also to pray with watchfulness, he says. Remember, we need to be alert. We need to be awake. We can't pray falling asleep. Right? We talked about that. And also, you need to be alert to the needs around you. Be alert to the needs of the saints. And specifically, be alert to the temptations that are overcoming you so you can pray with specificity. And then, of course, we saw that we are to pray with thanksgiving. And all of our prayers, our hearts ought to be thankful. We pray with an attitude of gratitude, a thankful heart. So that would be the frequency of prayer, the condition of prayer, and you could say the attitude of prayer. But then in verses 3-4, to we saw two more elements of prayer. Two more elements. We saw the objects of prayer and the content of prayer. And that's to ask the question, who do we pray for and what do we pray? And we saw that last week. In verse 3, Paul said, praying at the same time for us. Praying for us. Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me and my co-laborers, my companions. So the ones for whom we should pray is other believers. And specifically in this case, other church leaders. But then Paul made two requests. Two requests in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison. 
Paul wanted gospel opportunity. He wanted doors open for the gospel, so he prayed that the Colossians would pray toward that end. And then finally, in verse 4, we saw his second request. Verse 4, Pray for me, he says, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So he prays for gospel clarity. Gospel opportunities and gospel clarity. God, open a door for me to preach the gospel and grant me clarity as I do. Simple. Do you pray that way? Is that the way we pray? I've said it before, right? Most of our prayer lists, and there's nothing inherently wrong about praying for Aunt Susie's big toe, right? May the Lord heal it. We, we want that. We want to pray for people's health. We want to pray for people's financial resources. But I think that there's a primary thrust to the prayers of the Bible. They're usually God-centered and spiritually focused. And so we need to pray for the kingdom of God. We need to pray for doors. Pray that God would open up a door for you, for others, and specifically for gospel ministers, that He would give them opportunities for the gospel and give you clarity. And by doing that, you'll be amazed as you watch the Lord open up doors. And then you'll feel bad about yourself when you don't walk through those doors later. So you need to be ready, right? Be bold. So evangelistic prayer is the first way by which we can reach the world for Christ. But there is a second way by which we can influence the world for our Savior. And that is evangelistic conduct. Evangelistic conduct. That's where we pick up this morning. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. We're to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Now what in the world is an outsider? We don't even like that term today, right? Seeker-friendly church. Let everybody feel included. Inclusive. Tolerance. But the Bible uses the word outsider. What is an outsider? Let me read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that answers that question. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? There's that word. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? So notice Paul's distinguishing there between outsiders and those within the church. So outsiders then would be those outside the church, those outside of Christ, those outside the faith, unbelievers, non-Christians, who we are called to evangelize, whom we are called to bring the gospel to. And we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward unbelievers. But what is wisdom? What is wisdom? We talk about that word a lot might say this person's wise, or that was a wise decision, or that was not a wise decision. We talk a lot about wisdom. Well, first of all, that word conduct there, the word literally means to walk. This is the way we're to live our life. Whatever this wisdom is, it has to do with the way we live. Paul says live in wisdom before outsiders. It's the pattern of our life. The pattern of our life must be one of wisdom. Wisdom. But what is that? What is wisdom? What does it look like? It's the word Sophia where we get English words like sophistication from. right? We get the word philosophy, meaning lover of wisdom. The word wisdom, it just usually, we talk about it this way, it's knowledge applied. Wisdom is knowledge applied. It's more than knowing facts, it's applying those facts. It's living life in light of those facts. It is to live out the Word of God. To live out the Word of God. Now, where, where do we get this wisdom? Where do we get it? We get it from God given by God. Listen to what James 1.5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Simple enough, right? We keep making bonehead mistakes in life, just ask the Lord for wisdom. He'll give us wisdom. God will give us wisdom. 
We have a biblical illustration of that, don't we? Who can we think of in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, that asked the Lord for wisdom? Solomon. Solomon, right? God told him, ask whatever you wish, and instead of praying for long life or riches and wealth, he prayed for wisdom. That itself was a very wise request. He already had some wisdom in there, I think. But the Lord granted him wisdom and also granted him all the others. Now, that's not a promise to you. You might not get rich and have a long life because you pray for wisdom, but you will get wisdom if you pray for wisdom. God will grant you wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So true wisdom is granted only to those who fear God and bow the knee to Him in faith. Apart from that, there is no wisdom. That's why we live in the culture in which we live, right? Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes, and then there is no wisdom in their hearts. If you don't fear God, you do not have wisdom. That's why we live in a culture, as I've said before, that can't figure out who's a boy and a girl, but denies God's existence on a scientific basis. They can't even account for the scientific methodology, and yet they try to utilize it against the God that they do know. But if you don't fear God, you cut yourself off from the source of wisdom, you have no wisdom. You have none. So wisdom comes from God, and He grants it through prayer. But this wisdom is found in Christ. It's found in Christ. Remember back in Colossians 2, Paul said that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ alone. Christ alone. You should recall that the false teachers in Colossae, they were selling a false form of wisdom. A false form of wisdom. Many scholars believe that what we have here in this heretical teaching in Colossae is what we would call an incipient Gnosticism, an early form of Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. Now, they taught that this wisdom, this knowledge by which we can escape the material world is imparted to the spiritual elite by worship, via worshiping these various angels that have come from God. And Paul says, no, that's insane, that's nonsense. True wisdom, the only place true wisdom is hidden is in Christ. And it's available to all who come to Him. All who come to Him. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. How long, O naive ones? How long, O simple ones? Will you reject wisdom? Come to Me. Come. And all who come to Christ find that wisdom. But if you're not in Christ, if you're an unbeliever today, you don't have a lick of wisdom. You don't have any wisdom. Psalm 14.1 The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of the world is folly before God. You can take all the philosophers, all the seemingly genius scientists of the world, put them all together, and they have nothing to offer compared to the infinite wisdom of God. God is wise. And those who embrace His truth find wisdom. But if you're not in Christ, you're a fool. That's not the Bible engaging in derogatory name-calling. That is just an accurate description of one who rejects God, the source of wisdom, and thus reduces himself to folly. You reject God. You know God exists. You know you've broken His law. You know you deserve His wrath. You've heard the Gospel. Everything's offered to you in Christ. True forgiveness, true grace, true wisdom. And you reject that for the way of death. You are a fool. A fool. What would we think of someone who holds on to a suitcase full of money as he sinks into the sea? instead of giving up the suitcase to swim to the life preserve. So it is for the man who sinks to hell out of his love for the world instead of fleeing from the world and running to Christ by faith. That's a fool. 
So this wisdom is found only in Christ. And we know that. We have wisdom. When the world cries out around us that the sky is falling, we know God is in control. God is sovereign. When the world cries out, we came from monkeys and fish, we know that's an absolute insane lie. We know where we came from. When the world cries out, there's no God but black lives matter. How do you get that? How do you get animals' lives mattering? Only the Christian worldview can account for that. Only the Christian worldview offers a worldview in which wisdom is even possible. Wisdom comes in Christ. And this wisdom is found for us in the Word of God. It's delineated in Scripture, stored in the Word of God. Back to Colossians 3, verse 16. Remember Paul said, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you in all wisdom. All wisdom. If you let the Word of God dwell in your heart, you'll have wisdom. MacArthur says, if you master the Word of God, you'll always know what to say to the culture. Right? Master the Word of God, you'll have real wisdom. Real wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Wisdom comes from the mouth of God. It comes from Scripture, His words, out of His mouth, recorded in Scripture. What does 2 Timothy 3 tell us? All Scripture is what? Inspired by God. The Greek, theonoustos, breathed out by God. Spoken out of the mouth of God. That's where true wisdom is found. It comes from God. It's hidden in Christ, revealed to us in Scripture, and imparted to us through prayer. So those who diligently and prayerfully study the Word of God, they are the ones who will have the most wisdom. Diligent students of Scripture have wisdom. But now, practically speaking, what does this wisdom look like in our everyday life? What does it look like? Well, if wisdom is the ability to ascertain the practical principles of Scripture, to draw them out and apply them to our lives, then wisdom looks like obedience to the Word of God. It looks like a transformed life. It affects our behavior. You know, you can know a lot of facts and be a fool. In fact, you could say that the biggest fool in the world is the one who knows the most of the Word of God and doesn't apply it. That's a fool. True wisdom is the application of that knowledge, to live in light of that knowledge. In James chapter 3, we learn about wisdom from above. In verse 13 of James 3, James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? And everybody in our culture goes, Oh, me! Right? Me! Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. You see that? True wisdom demonstrates itself in our behavior and the way we live our life. And then he goes on in verse 17 to give us a detailed description of this wise behavior. He writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And in verse 18 he adds, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's wisdom. Purity, peace, gentleness, righteousness. It's the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit. A transformed life. That's the way you are to conduct yourself. That's the way you're to live your life before an unbelieving and watching world. Live a life of wisdom. A life of godliness. A life of obedience to the Word of God. And then, you'll avoid bringing unnecessary reproach upon the Gospel. But how does this aid us in our evangelism? What does this have to do with evangelism? We've already established that living a godly life is not evangelism, right? We've, we've established that in Sunday school, 
Evangelism is to proclaim the gospel. Right? We, we saw that back in verse 3. We're going to see that again in verse 6 in a few minutes. But the word euangelizo, where we get the English word evangelism, means to speak the good news. Declare the good news. So that old quote, right? Share the priest the gospel. If necessary, use words. That is unbiblical. It is unbiblical. You cannot preach the gospel without words. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. You want people to come to faith, you need to preach the Word of Christ. They don't need to see your godly life primarily. Your life's important, but what they primarily need to hear about is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But your life, when it's lived in conformity to that truth, honors the Gospel. It commends the Gospel. It adorns the Gospel. But to live opposite of that would bring reproach upon the Gospel. So that's where we get it. But a better way to word that quote would be preach the Gospel if necessary, use an amp. Right? Because we have to use words to preach the Gospel. But what does it have to do with our behavior? It means that when we live in wisdom before an unbelieving world, it brings honor to the Gospel. It brings honor to the Gospel. A godly life makes our witness more attractive, more appealing, more believable. If we go out saying, friend, you're strung out on drugs, keep on going, it's going to damn you to hell, but Christ offers you real life, real forgiveness, real liberation. He'll save you from hell, transform your life, and then He sees us living in sin. He'll be like, what? Your Gospel will do that? So our lives commend the Gospel or they bring reproach upon it. So we should never do anything to put an unnecessary stumbling block in the way of an unbeliever. We should do nothing that would hinder the progress of the Gospel. Lest we tear down with our lives that what we build up with our mouths. We don't want to do that. We want our lives and our speech to be consistent. We are, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Right? So we should, as He goes on to say, let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we want. Philippians 2.15 You are to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's what we are. We're the lights in the world. The glory of Christ is seen in the way we live. And the way we live should be in such a way that it commends the Gospel. Are you doing that? Is your life doing that when you're at work? When you're at school? When you're driving in traffic? When you're doing ministry, does your life bring honor to the Gospel or reproach upon the Gospel? That's a question we have to always consider. MacArthur says, Believers are called to live in such a way that they establish the credibility of the Christian faith and make the most of every evangelistic opportunity. Then he adds, What believers are gives credibility to what they say. Right? A life that is in conformity to the Word of God will bring honor and commendation to the Gospel. And we do all of this, the end of verse 5 says, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity. The Greek here could literally be rendered redeeming the time. We've heard that, right? Redeeming the time. The word for time here, kairos, it doesn't refer to chronological time. That's the word chronos where we get the English word chronology. This word refers here instead to the time of opportunity, to a definite time, an opportune time. He says, buy up the time. How do you do that? You can't buy more time, can you? 
No, the only way to buy up the time is to use the little time you have in a way that brings glory to God. To use the little time you have the right way, an effective way. So Paul's speaking metaphorically here. He's saying, make the most of the time. Make the most of every opportunity. The same thing he said to the Ephesians, right? Ephesians 5, Therefore, be careful how you walk, that word walk again, not as unwise men, but as wise. Okay, So you don't need to live your life as a fool. You need to live it in wisdom. Then he goes on and says, making the most of your time. You got that? A wise man makes the most of his time. A fool squanders his time away. Make the most of your time. Then he goes on and adds, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So do you want to walk wisely? Then know and do the will of God. That's wisdom. Know the will of God and live out the will of God at every moment for His glory. That's what a wise man does. Why? Because the days are evil. We could even add because the days are short. Life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. If you're like me, you can't believe you're almost 30. I'm feeling it on my back this morning, right? And some of you are feeling it a lot more than I am. Don't lie, right? So, we get old. It happens so quickly. I remember being 11, 12, 13, like yesterday. Laying in my bed. I would often do this. I don't know if you guys do this, but often I'll lay in my bed and when I was young, I would think, man, I'm already 13. I've got about 40 or 50 years left. I've only got a few more, you know, 30, 40 years left of my parents. I mean, and now it's even less. I'm almost 30. I mean, I've, I mean, this is, pray for me. You know, they say 30 is when you start to die. And so the death process has begun. And so it's, it's amazing. Life is short. Not to trivialize that, but life is, is very short. We have limited time. We don't want to squander it away. We don't want to waste our life. Do you want to do that? Waste your life? We need to lay aside trivial worldly pursuits and be about the kingdom. Be about our Master's business. Be on mission with Jesus. Live every moment for the glory of God. In Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses wrote, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing that your time is short and living in the light of eternity. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Living with an eternal perspective. Viewing everything in the light of eternity. Everything. Even mundane things. Why do I go to work? and support my family because it brings glory to God and honors the Gospel now. Why do, I, why do I do what I do? I do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Don't you want your life to be lived in such a way that it has impact for eternity? Isn't that what you want? Jonathan Edwards said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. He said, where will all of our worldly enjoyments be? when we are laid in the silent grave. What are they going to be then? In his famous resolutions, Edwards wrote, Resolved to live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. To live as I had wished I had done when I come to die. Again, he wrote, Resolved to live as I shall wish I had done 10,000 ages hence. To live all of my life right now the way I'm going to want to have lived it in eternity. The way I'm going to wish I had lived it when I come to my deathbed. Live it with eternal perspective. Isn't that what you want? No regrets? Not looking back saying, man, I wish I had that back. Are you really going to regret not watching on your deathbed? Are you going to regret not watching the latest Netflix series on TV? Are you going to regret 
missing that big Tennessee Vols football game? Are you going to regret any of those kinds of things? Trivial matter? No, you know what you're going to regret? You're going to regret the lack of time you spent with your family. You're going to regret the lack of time you spent in the Word and prayer. And you're going to regret the lack of time you spent preaching the Gospel and serving the church for the Kingdom of God. That has eternal benefit. Are you living that way? Make the most of your time. And specifically, whenever you're in the world, in front of outsiders, in front of unbelievers, you have a, an opportunity there to live in a way that would bring glory to Christ and honor the Gospel. Don't waste it. When you're at the grocery store later, don't waste it getting angry because you can't find your shopping list and kick the buggy, right? Don't waste your opportunity. Brothers and sisters, is that the way you're living your life? Are you living in the light of eternity? Are you living with an eternal perspective? Are you squandering the way your life? And this is so important for those of you here today who are not in Christ. What are you going to do? Waste your time? Waste your life? Squander it away only to be damned forevermore after this? Or are you going to come to Christ? Come to Him in faith. Find life in Him. And then live now with the little time you have left for His glory and for eternal impact. That's the way we should live our life. So if you're wasting your life, stop now. Make the most of it. Do all that you do for the glory of Christ. Preach the Gospel. Live a godly life. Live in a way that brings Him glory. Because we can reach the world for Christ through evangelistic conduct. But there's one more way by which we can effectively reach the world for Christ. And that's evangelistic speech. Evangelistic speech. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul moves beyond our conduct to our speech. He moves here from our lips to our, from our lives to our lips. From the way we walk to the way we talk. It's not only important how we walk before unbelievers, but how we talk to them and before them and in front of them. To effectively reach the world for Christ, we have to speak in a way that is consistent with His Word. So literally, let your words always be with grace. That's the way we can render this passage. Always speak with grace. What is grace? We talk a lot about that word. The word grace, charis in the Greek, it means favor, kindness. And it usually has the idea of undeserved kindness. You're to speak with kindness to those around you. And this is true of evangelistic conversations specifically, and even just ordinary conversations with unbelievers in general. We're to speak with kindness to them. Always, at all times, even whether they deserve it or not, whether they treat us well or not, we're to speak to them with grace. doesn't matter if you're driving in traffic, shopping at the grocery store, posting on Facebook, arguing with people about politics. You should speak to them in grace. Is that what you do? Speech is important, by the way. Jesus says, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Calvin said, the tongue is a window to the soul. You want to look into someone's house, you look in the window. You want to look into someone's heart, you look at their speech. How do you respond to people when they treat you harshly? Do you speak with grace? Or do you respond harshly as well? He says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Now what in the world does salt have to do with anything? Salt. What does salt have to do with evangelism? What was salt used for in Paul's day? Two primary purposes. To preserve food and to season food. To keep it from corruption and to make it taste better. 
So Paul's saying this, speak with grace because it makes your speech better. It softens the blow. You see, we can say very tough things, but if we speak it with grace, it's often going to be more well received. Right? We can say harsh things. I mean, you could tell a sinner, friend, I love you. I care for you. I don't want you to die in your sin and go to hell. Please come to Christ. Or you can say, you sinner, God hates you. You need to repent. You communicated truth in both conversations. But one was with grace and one was not. One was honoring to God one was not. We've all seen the churches where they're, you know, they're sandwich boards and God hates people. and It's not an effective way to speak the Gospel to people. We need to speak with grace. If you just speak harshly, you're going to turn your hearers off. You're going to anger them, incite them, cause them to want to persecute you. And if you're persecuted for preaching harshly, you're not being persecuted for Jesus. You're being persecuted for being a jerk. And you're getting the fruit of your labor. It's what you've earned for yourself. We need to speak with grace. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's what we want. To speak in a way that gives grace. Those who are living in a state of grace should speak with grace. Those who are saved by grace should flavor their speech with the same. We must speak with grace. And you're to do all of this, he says at the end of verse 6, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's how you need to respond. In grace. In kindness. And this also calls for wisdom, doesn't it? We need to know how to respond. We need to say the right things to the right people at the right time in the right circumstances in the right way. We need to do that. And we always need to do it with grace. Ecclesiastes 10.12 says, Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Right? Wise men speak with grace. Fools do not. They speak harshly. And it consumes them. Their words come back upon them. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Someone's angry at you, and you say something harshly back, they're going to just get even angrier. But if you say something kind... Right? I like your shoes. You know, maybe that'll turn them away. Right? So gentle answer turns away wrath. So don't be persecuted for being a jerk. Be persecuted. The gospel's offensive enough. We don't have to add our own offense to it. You don't have to do that. Don't go out and get persecuted, put pictures of yourself on Facebook, say, look, being persecuted for Jesus. When really you're being persecuted for being a meanie. Show grace. Speak with grace. That's what a wise man does. And who's our model in this? Who's the epitome of a wise man? Jesus. No-brainer, right? Jesus. Our Lord Himself. Luke 4.22 says, All were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. Gracious words. You know, we need to keep in mind here that Jesus was hated by the world, right? Because He testified that their deeds were evil, John chapter 7. That's true. But you know, a lot of times in Jesus' ministry, it was really the minority that were persecuted. It was usually the religious leaders. The crowds, though many of them were superficial, wanted the wrong things, at least they were speaking well of Him because He was speaking gracious words to them, even when He said a harsh thing. I mean, you can imagine Jesus in Luke 13.3, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. How do you think He said that? You're going to perish? My friends, you're going to perish. I don't want that. Right? That's the sense. Be the grace. 
Jesus' words were gracious, and so should ours. If we're really going to walk as He walked, if we're really going to be conformed to His image, we must speak with grace. Remember, we're to be the salt of the world, right? Mark 9.50, Jesus said, Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? You ever had salt that became unsalty? Me either, right? It's not good when it does, though. You go to McDonald's, you get your fries, and there's no salt on them. That's, we understand that, right? No salt, it's not very good. But salt, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we're to have salt in ourselves. We're to flavor our speech with grace as with salt. That's how you need to respond. And this is true, again, in every situation. It doesn't matter if it's a conversation about politics, if it's a conversation about the weather, about sports, or about the Gospel in particular. Your speech must be with grace. Even when we defend the faith against skeptics, right? Even when I'm talking to the one that's Pentecostal on the sidewalk at the abortion clinic. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us the way we're to engage in apologetics. Peter writes, "...but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence or respect. That's where we get the word apologetics from, by the way. The word defense, apologia. Make an apologetic and do it with respect and kindness and gentleness. That's the way we defend that. We must proclaim the Gospel with grace. Max Andrews wrote, we are to share the Gospel with clarity, wisdom, and grace. MacArthur adds, the Gospel should be proclaimed clearly, boldly, wisely, and graciously. It's clear. It's easy to understand. It's, it's wise. You know what to say at the right times. It's bold. You're not going to shrink back from declaring what is profitable. But it's gracious. You're going to say it with kindness. With kindness. Douglas Moo wrote, acting wisely toward outsiders includes making the most of every opportunity and speaking to them in the right manner. Brothers and sisters, may that be true of us, that Christ is King. May we be a people who speak with grace. So how do we effectively reach the world for Christ? Three ways. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, and evangelistic speech. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, evangelistic speech. Pray for God to open up doors for the Word. Live a godly life before an unbelieving world. And when you speak to them in general conversation or proclaim the Gospel to them, do it with grace. And as you apply these three things to your life, as we apply these three things to our lives, we can be confident that the Lord will use Christ as King Baptist Church to advance His kingdom and reach the world for His glory. And I know you all know this, right? This, this is our culture here. We have a culture of evangelism in Christ as kingdom. It's the lifeblood of our church. It's amazing over the last week how many of you have told me about the witnessing encounters you're having. It's amazing. This is just a a church that is on fire to reach the world for Christ. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm not saying that in a flattering manner. It's true. We're always talking about our gospel opportunities. May we excel still more and more. May we never lose that evangelistic zeal. As we do that, as we excel more and more, we can trust that the Lord will use us to that end. Let's pray. Lord, what we want is Your kingdom to come. We want Christ to be glorified. We want the world to be turned upside down for Christ starting right here in our own community. We want people to be saved from the wrath of God and to be brought into the kingdom. And we know that You're gracious so as to use people like us, sinners, 
worthy of judgment, yet taking us out of a state of spiritual deadness, bringing us to life, and using us to cast the net of the Gospel to bring others into Your kingdom. We thank You for that. So help us as a church to be faithful, and may You graciously honor our weak endeavors to bring people into Your kingdom. For Your glory. Amen.